we'll talk about the stepladder assignment at the end of the class. And then I'll introduce you to your next assignment, which is much shorter. <laughs> okay. So tonight we're, um, we're looking at this subject of meaning. At first glance, when, when I were, if I were to ask you, what's the meaning of the text? You might just assume, well, it's, it's either obvious, it's easy, it may be difficult, but there's only one way to speak of meaning. I mean, there's one meaning and that's all there is to it. The reason, however, why people often misinterpret or interpret differently a text is because there are several ways to use the word meaning, and you want to make sure you understand the way you're speaking of meaning so that you're on the right track to find the correct meaning. So we're talking about communication then, and um, communication of course implies that two or more parties are present. So there's the, the giver of the information and there's the recipient or the receiver of the information. We're going to talk about audience, that's the word I'll use, and we'll differentiate between the original audience, which could be one person or a whole nation of people, and the modern audience, which is us. So that when I, when I use the word audience, I'm speaking of the person that's receiving the information from the biblical text. So since the Bible, of course, is a, doc, is a document written to communicate a message, it's important for us to both understand who the original audience was, as best as we can tell from a text, or we could say the recipients of the book. And it also means, uh, and also the means by which we take and apply the message to the current audience. So there's, there's, some, there's some things that have to happen between understanding the meaning to the original audience and understanding the meaning to, to us. And so intrinsic to this discussion of interpretation and audience then and now is the subject of meaning. So I'm going to introduce you to four ways that you can think of meaning. And um, let me just have a quick peek at your notes because I want to see what I gave you. I can't always remember. Okay, so we're, we're on this section here. This is page 11. So you'll see there four levels of meaning. So the first is um, the grammatical and textual meaning of words. This word has a meaning attached to it. If I start adding words before it, that adds meaning to this phrase. This adds meaning. This adds meaning. So you, every word has a meaning or could have multiple meanings. But then you, you add words to it and you have a fuller meaning attached to it. And then you have issues of grammar, of course. So when we talk about meaning, we could be talking about the meaning of a word. That's the most fundamental level of meaning. What does this word mean? Then the second level is when you take words together, what is the meaning that the author intended? What did the author intend? What you take and what the author intends may ex be exactly the same or it may be entirely different or somewhere in between. So what did the author mean? This, the third level of meaning is the meaning the meaning that the ancient reader or audience understood. When 
Hosea was read for the very first time by the original recipient, what, what did they understand from the text? And then the fourth level of meaning is the modern reader. So what does the modern reader take from the text or understand from the text? Now, ideally, you start here and you work your way to here. You don't just jump to here. Sorry, this isn't supposed to be aligned. This is supposed to be aligned under. So you, you want to understand words, grammar. You're looking at them in context, taking all the things you took into consideration in your assignment. Culture, geography, history, everything you can think of. And then as best as you can tell, what did the author mean? What did the original audience understand? And then what am I supposed to understand from the text? These are not always the same. Why? Nor should they always be the same. Why? Give me one reason why sometimes the ancient reader understands something different than the modern reader. Joe? Right. So we have more information at our disposal. And let's say we're reading, let's say we're reading from uh, Hosea. Well, the, the ancient reader didn't have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So they're going to see something a little different in chapter 3 than you and I are, because we have the advantage of progressive revelation from God to inform our understanding of Hosea 3. So now we, I want to talk a little bit about different ways that people have, I think, um, misunderstood meaning or m misused the Bible. I'll just introduce you to three. We could talk about dozens of them, I'm sure. And I'm just introducing you to these three because they tend in church or theological circles to be popular discussion points. You may have heard the word neo-orthodoxy at some point in time. Orthodoxy, strictly speaking, means the straight road. So when we say we're orthodox with a small o, we mean we believe in pure or straightforward doctrine. If you add a big o to it, and the word Eastern in front of it, you're talking about a denomination, the Eastern Orthodox Church. While we don't agree with the Eastern Orthodox Church in many of their theological points, they actually have a great name because the Orthodox means straight truth. Just like the word Catholic actually is a really good word, it means universal, the universal church. So the church that we call the Roman Catholic Church, we don't agree with many of its theological tenets, but they've picked a pretty good name to call themselves. So we think about orthodox. When I say the word orthodox in a sermon or a class, don't think, oh, he's talking about Serbs living in the former Yugoslavia attending an orthodox church. Think of straight way, just like you straight, an orthopedic surgeon straightens your arm if it's broken. So neo-orthodoxy is a fancy word that arose in the 1900s for a new form of orthodoxy, supposed orthodoxy, and it was advocated by a man by the name of Karl Barth, who also sometimes, his theological system is always also sometimes called crisis theology. And I don't want to simplify him too much because he's a little bit complicated, and I really appreciate many of the things Barth taught, but there's a little bit of an issue here that I have with the way he frames things. So let's suppose this is a picture of the Bible. So this is the word of God, and this is the reader. 
This is you. So I've given you two symbols. I'm going to ask you a simple question. What is the word of God? Which one of those is the word of God? Or where is the word of God in relation to those two symbols? Okay, so we would say this is the word of God. Anybody disagree with that? Say no. Okay, good. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you're correct. It's not a trick question. This is the word of God. The Bible is the word of God. But Bart's thinking was a little bit different. As the reader comes toward the word of God, opens it and reads it, and as these words come toward the reader, there's a coming together, a crisis, a moment, an experience, and it's in that crisis that the word of God is. So in Bart's way of thinking, this is the word of God. The word of God is when the Bible impacts the human, and it's in that moment that the Bible becomes the word of God. Now there's a, there's a certain measure of truth to that, in that we want to apply the Bible and take it into our lives, but this book is the Bible regardless of whether or not I read it. It's the, it's, the, it's the word of God by itself. Whether I was born or not, read it or not, it just is the word of God. So we have to be a little bit careful with this because this is a slippery slope into sort of more of an esoteric, pie-in-the-sky, mystical view of God's word where it's not no longer objective and written. It's, it's, the, it's in my experience that I sort of determine what God's word is. So let's say this in this X, I arrive at conclusion A, um, Dave arrives at conclusion B, Sue arrives at conclusion C. Well, in theory, then, there's three different words of God on the table. And I would say, I don't feel real comfortable with that. What I would say is if there's three different conclusions, there's either three different errors or three different applications or something like that, but there's not three different words of God. So we have to be careful to make sure that we, when we think of the word of God, that we keep in mind that it's this book, not just my experience with the book. The second uh, popular divergent view is the Bible code. How, how many of you have heard of the Bible code? Anybody? Okay, so the Bible code is basically you take, let's say the Hebrew Bible, and um, let's just say for the sake of illustration that these are lines on a page in the Hebrew Bible. In order for this system to work, you have to line them up. So you have to line up the letters this way and the lines this way, all the way across. So they're, they're all in parallel to each other. Then they run them through a computer. And the computer searches for secret messages. So the message might be, you know, O, B, A, M, A, you know, is the Antichrist right, kind of thing. <laughs> This is true stuff. And so advocates of the Bible could have argued that there's several secret meanings in the Bible that God has hidden from us until such time as our technology has developed so we could run the Bible through these in a grid pattern through uh, computer systems and come up with secret messages. And there's whole books written on this. And what I find is dangerous, evangelicals are especially guilty of this, is that we're always looking for like a new angle, something fresh that no one's ever seen before. 
And this is sometimes very dangerous. It's sort of stimulating, it's interesting. And so people gravitate toward this garbage and begin to propagate it. This is a faulty way of reading the text. If for no other reason, then it violates this, it violates this, and it violates this, minimally. All three of these. It misuses words. It violates the intention and the knowledge of the original author. And it violates, at all points in Scripture, the understanding of the original recipient. The third approach is what's simply sometimes called the reader-driven meaning, which basically is sort of self-explanatory. You're reading it, you decide what it means. It's sort of an extreme outflowing of the individualism that tends to be in our culture. Think of it this way. We evangelicals emphasize a personal relationship with Jesus, do we not? But sometimes we overemphasize it. And people go away thinking, oh, okay, so really it's just me and God. And they don't think of their relationship with God in relationship to the church. Because the Bible also teaches it's interdependent. And the interdependent aspect of Christianity is not secondary to the personal. It's both and. So when you are a Christian, you are called into a personal relationship with Christ, but you're also called into a body to whom you are accountable, to whom you must discover and use your gifts, you know, on and on and on. There's all sorts of things we could talk about under, under our ecclesiology, our understanding of church life. So no Christian can be an obedient Christian and not be in the church. It's impossible. Uh, your relationship with Christ is uh, personal and interpersonal. But the reader-driven approach is extremely individualistic. So Mark Russell decides what the Bible means for him, and that becomes truth. And Eric Malcolm decides what the Bible means for him, and that becomes truth. And I decide what it is for me, and it becomes truth. And you could have as many opinions on a text as there are people in the room. So this is, these are three views that we want to be very careful of and avoid. Let me then propose to you a key statement, a key proposition, and that is that the text can never mean what it was never intended to mean. The text can never mean what it was never intended to mean. Now, having said that, there are multiple ways perhaps to apply a text to different circumstances. There are There is a sense in which the ancient reader might know more or less than the modern reader. But in the mind of God, the text can never mean what it was never intended to mean. We can't just read the Bible however we want. So the whole hocus-pocus abracadabra approach, where we just flip through the Bible and point and extract some meaning from the text because we've experienced it, that doesn't, that's, that's an unhealthy approach, and that doesn't hold water. The text cannot mean what it was never intended to mean. So your job then as a student of the Bible is to try to understand what was it intended to mean. And this is why we're teaching these processes, because the more we teach these processes... As you put these processes into practice, and you, you, don't, you won't master them in a two-hour assignment. As you put them into practice over and over and over again, they become like second nature to you. And you just start to see things in the text that you didn't see before. Because you've learned to think culturally, historically, structurally, grammatically, and so forth. Now, we, we accept this statement. But um, we also recognize that meaning 
may be multifaceted and layered. I'll give you an example. There's times when over my years and years and years of, of preaching ministry, I've come into a book or a text that I've preached before, but it's an entirely new sermon because I might be looking at it from a different angle or emphasizing th certain things in the text that I didn't have the opportunity to do last time or didn't see last time or whatever. So it's true. You could hear me preach John 3 10 different times, and it could be 10 different sermons. There's not, there's not going to be contradiction between them, of course, but there's different angles or layers of meaning that a person can preach from. That's true. But there's only one intended exegetical meaning. Now, for those of you that maybe are newer to the class, missed the first class, what's, what is exegesis? Okay, okay, very good. To draw out. So exegesis is the, the, the system of drawing out meaning. Eisegesis is bad. That's where you push meaning into it. But exegesis, you're pulling meaning out. So there's really only one intended exegetical meaning or uh, principles or um, doctrinal issues or, or moral issues that, that can be deduced from a text as accurate implications of the, ex, the text's exegetical meaning. So when you exegete a text, you are pulling out its meaning, then you're, you can apply that to moral situations or ethical situations. You can apply it to your understanding of Christian doctrine. You can apply it to the practical issues of relationships. But those are applications of the exegetical meaning of the text. So you've got to understand the exegetical meaning before you get into all this other stuff. So these implied meanings then are not, not to be arbitrary. Again, they're not just up to you to decide. They're, they're derived consciously from employing, employing, putting into practice, sound interpretive principles or hermeneutical principles. So that is, what we're saying then is meaning is not limited to one idea or statement per text. You could hear a preacher preach on one verse for three hours. So there could be many things you could take out of a text, but the exegetical meaning shouldn't take him three hours to explain. Okay. So let's look at some quick biblical examples. Uh, these are primarily Old Testament and then comparing them with New Testament passages. So Hosea 11. I'm going to go to Hosea first of all. Here's what it says. When Israel was a child, I called, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. What does that mean? What's the exegetical meaning? Just put it in your own words. Don't be a sh shy or, or uh, concerned about being wrong. Give it, a, give it a go. What does it mean? When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. What's the author referring to? Pardon me? The Exodus. So the Exodus is that event. The nation of Israel moves... Well, before it was really a nation, Jacob and his sons moved to Egypt. They become a nation. Everything's great for a while. Things go sour. 
And they're captive. They're there for four centuries. God does a miracle, series of miracles through Moses. And he calls his son, Israel, out of Egypt. Pretty simple. Let's go to Matthew 2, verse 15. We'll start with verse 13. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and says, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. Who's the child? Jesus. For Herod is about to search for the child and destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you tried using a quote like that in an English paper at school, you would fail. Because you would be using the quote out of context, correct? Because everybody knows the quote in Isaiah, Isaiah is a reference to the nation of Israel. But Matthew applies it specifically to Jesus, which certainly Hosea did not have in mind. So what we would need to do then in hermeneutics, and we'll keep this brief because there's much that can be talked about, is we need to tweak our somewhat inadequate understanding of the word fulfill. We think of fulfill, it's almost like a one-for-one. One. He prophesied it in the future and then it happened in the future. Biblical prophecy almost never happens that way. The word fulfill is much more stretchy. It's much more elastic in ancient thought than it is today. But the concept of God calling his people, Israel, out of uh, Egypt is applied in a different context to a different person, but there are some analogies, there's some tie-ins. And questions like, well, is God going to bring them back? What is Jesus' relationship to Israel? You know, what what is Egypt as opposed to uh, the promised land? These are all questions that are meant to flood into the reader's mind. Now, later if we have some time, we'll talk a little bit about different ways that a New Testament writer can draw upon Old Testament texts and use them legitimately, because this is a whole study called the use of the Old Testament and the New, which is fascinating. But the point being is, here we have a text in Hosea that is applied in an unusual way by Matthew. But that doesn't change the exegetical meaning. You don't then go back to Hosea and say, oh, Hosea was thinking about Jesus. No, he was not. He was thinking about Israel coming out of Egypt centuries earlier. That's the exegetical meaning. That's the meaning that the ancient reader would have understood in Hosea. But now you can read Hosea as the modern reader because you now have Matthew at your disposal and you can see a little bit of prophetic material being presented to you. So this is just one example. I don't know if I gave you others in your notes. We don't have time to look at them all. Did I give you four examples, Psalm 45? Okay, so you can kind of look those up, mull them over in your head uh, if you'd like. And these will just illustrate the fact that sometimes the way the Bible is used by one writer, particularly by a New Testament writer, is different than... Uh, what the original in writer intended. So when you're interpreting a text, then what are some basic principles you can keep in mind? Let me just give you six. The first thing you should be focusing on is the raw exegetical meaning. 
the raw exegetical meaning. Do I understand the words? Do I understand the grammar? Do they all make sense to me? So you piece the words together. Study out the words, study out the grammar. If there's cultural stuff in there you need to explore, I've introduced you the tools for that. If there's geographical references, you know, get your atlas out. Do your background work. Read up on the text so you can come back to it and read clearly the exegetical meaning. The second thing then is once you've arrived at the exegetical meaning, you would then uh, examine further meanings or implications of the text in other passages of Scripture, if any. So using our Hosea example, the exegetical meaning is God is making a promise to Israel in Hosea that he redeemed them in the past, he's going to redeem them in the present. So this is roughly 7th century stuff. So there's a guy sitting in the 7th century writing this, his readers reading it, out of Egypt I call it, uh, okay, what is Hosea saying to me? He's reminding me by referring to the Exodus event that God is faithful, that God called his people out for a purpose, that we're part of covenant. Read the context. You'd come up with some sort of a statement like that. Then you would skip ahead to Matthew or look throughout your concordance for any other references to this passage in the Bible. Study out the context. Okay, now there's a bit of a messianic thing going on in there, tied to Christ based on Matthew. Then you'd skip ahead to the modern era and you'd start to think, okay, how can I then apply that to my people today? So if you think about it this way, um, think of yourself as sitting in four chairs. So chair number one, chair number two, chair number three, chair number four. So Hosea 11, picture a guy sitting here reading God's word hot off the press, so to speak, from Hosea. And ask yourself, what was he thinking when he read it? If you can answer that question, you've probably arrived at the exegetical idea. But if you want to go a little further, you would reference like the, the, the Matthew texts, etc. If this imagery, language, or event is recorded anywhere else in the Bible, and you would ask yourself, okay, so now there's a guy in the first century and he's reading Matthew's gospel hot off the press. How is he now reading Hosea 11? And then you could just kind of push it forward. You could have, let's say, I'm just making this up. Let's just say that, uh, you know, James 2, he doesn't. But let's just say James also references this event. Same thing, the guy in the chair, what's he understanding? What's he thinking about? James is, you know, after Matthew. And then, way down the road, this is you. And what are you supposed to do with this text? You don't start with chair number four. Now, to get from chair number one to chair number four, you got to do some work. you got to read the historical event of Exodus. You need to understand it. You need to understand what Egypt is. You need to understand the con why 
God refers to Israel as a son. So you need to read a little bit on covenant, relationship, and promise, and all these great themes that undergird this. And then out of that, you're going to ultimately arrive at some teachable points for your life and your audience. And it's not going to relate to Egypt, because we're not in Egypt. But there's going to be something there you can extract to use in your own life in preaching. And maybe that might be something as simple as God's a God of promise. He loves us, and even when we feel like we're trapped, he'll ultimately redeem us. And you can maybe then draw in some eschatological, some future heavenly text to kind of fill that out and make it preachable. So I've jumped ahead a bit, but back to our notes. Exegetical meaning first. Any other implications? So you're looking at other texts. Familiarize yourself with the use of the Old Testament and the New, if that happens to be relevant. The implications that you arrive at have to be clear, justifiable hermeneutically, which is our word for interpretation, and in accord with the analogy of Scripture. What's the analogy of Scripture? Remember? What's the principle of the analogy of Scripture? Anybody want to take a stab at it? If a Scripture is not so clear you go to scriptures that are clearer in order to clear up the issue. So the analogy of scripture is basically you're reading back and forth with other scriptures in order to try to clear up something you're not understanding in the text that's before you. So here's what I would propose, just as an example. If the only fragment of the Bible that you ever had in your possession was Hosea 11.1, you'd have a big problem. It would almost be nonsensical. So Hosea 11.1 doesn't make sense unless you've read Exodus. And Matthew doesn't make sense unless you've read Hosea and read Exodus. So right there you're, you're referring to multiple scriptures in order to shed light on the one that you're teaching or preaching or studying. So you can't just, it's almost impossible to ever read your Bible devotionally like this. You have to read it something like this. You got to move back and forth through it. Almost every text is going to require you looking somewhere else for further information. Because it all ties together, but it builds on previous revelation. So this is, roughly speaking, the analogy of Scripture. You're flipping back and forth. This is why you need to get familiar with your concordance in the back. You need to know the books of the Bible. By the way, I haven't mentioned this. You should know the books of the Bible by heart. There's only 66 words to remember. Some of them repeat themselves. First and Second Corinthians, right? First and Second Timothy. But you should know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and be able to go through it. So if someone's preaching or teaching and they say, "Let's go to Hosea," better go to my table of contents. Okay. Now, if you're a new Christian, okay, we expect you to go to your table of contents. But if you've been saved for a few years, that should embarrass you. A little bit, okay? Okay. Um, so remember, remember the books of the Bible. Just sit down and take some time to remember them at some point. There's actually songs you can sing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So you can YouTube those, and if that, if that helps you, <laughs> that'll help you a lot. Sunday school teachers, this is 
like 101 stuff. Teach it to your class. Um, fifth, the reader cannot simply invent or read meaning into a passage. This happens too often, and it's always what what uh, you know cult cult groups do. I mean, a cult. There's a difference between a cult and the occult. Sometimes we mix those words up. Occult, that's Satanism. A cult is Christianity severely messed up. And what cults do is they read meaning into it to try to justify some idea they have. They even mistranslate to try to justify an idea. So you have to be just careful. If no other Christian throughout human history has ever arrived at the conclusion you've arrived at, you are probably wrong. Six, keep in mind the genre of scripture. What's the genre of scripture? What do we mean by genre? The type. What are some types of scripture? Poems. Letters. Apocalyptic. History. So again, for those of you that maybe weren't here early on, the Bible's not written all as the same kind of literature. There's different kinds of literature in it. We call this genre. And you read poetry different than you read history, and you read history different than you read prophecy and so forth. Some genres are more apt to include multifaceted meaning, like prophetic literature, like apocalyptic. The stuff that's going to be a little more easy to understand, commandments. Those probably aren't going to have eight different meanings. They're probably not even going to have eight different applications. Thou shalt not commit adultery. There's one application to that. Okay. So then the um, question is Bible discrepancies. Um, sometimes when you're reading the text, admittedly, it's like, man, this, this doesn't seem to square with what I just read over here. Maybe there's a discrepancy. Or if you're not finding them, your atheistic friends will find them for you. Atheists and agnostics are really good at Bible study for finding the apparent discrepancies. They know nothing else, but they know where to find the discrepancies. So this is an interesting statement from about the 4th century, which is evidence of the fact that apparently this has been an issue for a long time in the church. So this is what St. Augustine wrote. Now this is translated into English, obviously, uh, but in his letter to Jerome, remember Jerome was the guy that translated the Bible into Latin? the Latin Vulgate, the common Bible. He said, when perplexed by something in scripture, which appears to oppose the truth, one, either the manuscript is faulty, so maybe you're dealing with some, a manuscript of the Bible that's been messed around with, or for our purposes, your version is not a good version. Or two, the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said. Or three, I myself have failed to understand the meaning. Those are your three options. But the Bible itself is not in error. So if you've arrived at a discrepancy, you got some work to do, or you need to find a different version of the Bible because you may have a spurious version. So here are some common uh, issues or problems that arise that sometimes confuse people. And if you want to figure out what your discrepancy is, it's not a bad idea to figure out what the nature of the discrepancy is. So identify it. I'm giving you a list of several kinds of discrepancies here. First one, 
problems arising from the translation. You have Aramaic, you have Hebrew, you have Greek, you're translating it into English. You might, you might mistranslate. So this is my Latin crew up here. If we were to take all the Spanish you know and translate it into, if each of you were to take Spanish, a Spanish paragraph, and translate it into English, there's absolutely no way that you would all use the exact same English words. No way. Uh, our brothers from the Philippines, same thing. Korea, China. Um, you'd arrive at different conclusions. French, right? Uh, Jay speaks five languages. Uh, if he was to translate, no. <laughs> if you translate from one language into the next, you always lose, you add, you know, you try to get the general meaning across, but it just doesn't always come through. There's been several times where I've been able to teach or preach in English and have it translated. Can't stand that because you're always worried the guy's going to, you know, misspeak. So I remember being in China a few times and, uh, couple times and I was teaching you know a week two weeks all day long and uh, I had this one translator the guy was incredible he'd never been out of China but he, I mean he could translate jokes and uh, songs and poems I mean the guy was unbelievable in his translation very young he was the guy was uh, just really gifted at it no accent and never been to North America yeah and he was self-taught his name was Dion. I've never seen anybody like that who, who mastered a foreign language with such minimal training as him. Just very gifted. So he was so good that the next time I went, which was about a year and a half later, he was now like the head translator, so they hired all these other guys to like translate. Uh, so my, my audience are their, are their Mandarin speakers. I'm speaking English. This guy's from an ethnic minority in China, so Mandarin's like his second or third language. And when I asked him what his, what his occupation was, I had to ask him, I'm usually pretty good at hearing through accents, but I had to ask him three or four times before I realized he was telling me he was a professor of oral English, <laughs> spoken English. And I had to ask him that through, pardon? What? Huh? So uh, his English wasn't good. Mandarin wasn't his first language, and he's translating for me. And I'm like, okay, this is just not going to go very well. So... What made it worse is as he's translating, all the Mandarin students are laughing at him because his Mandarin's so bad. Okay? And they start correcting him. And, you know, <laughs> so it, it's, you understand like when we're translating, there's always something lost. There's always like a sense of vulnerability there. And we are, we are English speakers. Uh, Aramaic and Greek and Hebrew is, is not the language we speak. So we, sometimes we arrive at apparent discrepancies because we're dealing with translations and that's the best we have so i mean there's a solution to that learn the languages but most of us don't have the time or interest to do that right i mean even in seminary they teach us how to do some translation but we don't we're not taught how to speak it and it's a it's a dead language as well the the you know the the dialect so we're always at a little bit of a loss there and we're sort of at the um the mercy of the, the academics who do this for a living. So it's just something we have to be aware of. The second problem is uh, problems arising from the nature of the human mind. Sorry, 
None of us have a perfect mind. The way we process information is affected by sin, our health, our IQ, our schooling, whatever. So we just need to be aware of that, that the, trans, the, the, the apparent discrepancy might not be in the book, it's in here. And this is why we do biblical study in the context of community, because other people's minds can sometimes clear things up that are confusing to us. So we borrow each other's intellect. Third, problems arising from the unique nature of divine revelation. God is communicating, not to confuse, of course, but he, he's, he's God. And there are certain, well, there's many things that God knows that the human mind has a real hard time wrapping, it, wrapping itself around. I mean, we could give lots of examples. Um, you know, the difficult doctrines of Scripture, predestination, election, uh, why God allowed sin, why God allows suffering. I mean, these are, I've taught and preached on all of these things, but there, I got to admit, there's an aspect to all of them that are kind of mysterious to me. I, you know, my, my mind just kind of maxes out. I just have to say, well, based upon other things I know about God, I'm going to have to just be okay with that. But I don't really understand it on a certain level because God is God and I'm not. So there's an aspect of trust there. Another problem, problem number four, and this is a, a big fancy word, but I'll say it and then I'll, I'll explain it. Anthropomorphic references to God. Anthro, man, so think anthropology. Pomorphic, anthropomorphic, morphing, changing, right? So when we say anthropomorphic, what we mean is that because God is spirit, he's he, he's intangible, and we are spirits of a tangible world, it's hard for our minds to comprehend something that's not tangible. So in order to ac accommodate our humanity, God uses, applies to himself, anthropomorphic references. So what are some of those? How about God's names? Father. Well, he's not a father in the sense that I'm a father or Dave's a father. But there's a sense in which God borrows our language, our human understanding of things, and applies it to himself to help us to understand a certain aspect about him because we learn by analogy that the righteous uh, right hand of the Lord, well, why right? There's a cultural thing going on there. Most people are right-handed. It tends to be a little bit stronger. So recently my boys have tried to, have been convincing me of doing some bench pressing, which doesn't come naturally to me. But when I bench press my max, I felt this arm just slightly drop because I'm right-handed. And my, my right hand, because I use it more, is naturally just a little stronger than my left. Well, most cultures know that. How many lefties in the room? Put up your right hand. No. Uh, how many, do we have any lefties here tonight? None at all? Oh, you're ambidextrous? Okay, so we have two halves. That's equivalent of one whole. <laughs> so we have one lefty in the room tonight. <laughs> the point is taken, right? Most people are right-handed. So it's the strong arm. There's some other cultural things to eat with your right hand. Yeah. 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 Do you know what that means? Yeah, we have this invention in North America called toilet paper, uh -huh. which doesn't exist in many...
cultures. I remember when I was in Morocco about 20-something 20, 20 years ago, we had to buy our own toilet paper and take it with us because when you went into, into a public bathroom, they didn't supply it. There was a bucket to wash your hand off in. Oh my. <laughs> True story. And um, the toilet paper there is not what you would expect. It's more like when you're having your kid's birthday party and you go to the dollar store and buy that crumply streamer that you put across the room. It's, it's more like that in Morocco. It's like red, it's crumply, um, you need a lot of lotion, no. Um, it's it's a different culture. And in ancient times, people would always reserve their right hand for eating from the common pot, and their left hand was their potty hand. So it was the despised hand. And um, so think about all that, which you may or may not have been aware of, and it kind of adds fuller meaning <laughs> to the righteous right hand of the Lord. <laughs> yeah, it is pretty righteous. So these are anthropomorphisms. God doesn't have an arm, but it helps us to understand something about, let's say, his strength. So we look for those in the scripture. Um, even uh, along these lines, God, sometimes in the Bible, talks about um, God forgetting. Well, he doesn't literally forget because he's God. He knows all things perfectly. So his mind doesn't process information. He just perfectly knows all. And the idea of forgetting something is a process issue. God's mind doesn't process information. He knows everything perfectly always. So based on that alone, it's impossible for God to forget anything. But sometimes God talks about forgetting. So he, like he forgot Noah, and all of a sudden he remembered Noah. Well, that's human anthropomorphic language to try to communicate to us something about God and the passing of time and that kind of thing. But you have people running around saying, see, that proves your God doesn't have a perfect mind. He, forget, he forgot Noah in the boat. No, it's, you're not understanding the anthropomorphic language of the text. Uh, five, problems arising, arising from man's fallen condition. What is our fallen condition? We're sinful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Even our motives, our intentions are sometimes off. And if you are, have you ever been in like a, a, a Bible class, a Sunday school class, sitting in a sermon, someone sitting down with you, and they're explaining something from God's word? And in your head, you totally know what's being said but in your heart, you're blocking it out. Nope, I, I will not listen to that. That's too painful, or I'm not ready for that. Have you had those experiences? I think we all have. So you can even understand something with your mind, but the fallen condition of your human nature causes you to block it out. You refuse to listen to it. I've had this several, had, I've experienced this in my own life, and I've had it as I've confronted people who are mired in sin, where they know, they may know what you're telling them more than you know it, but there's something in them that just, they're obstinate, they refuse to listen. So we have to be very careful when we read the text that we are aware of our own spiritual state, the sin, the lack of sin, the purity, the obedience, the disobedience that's going on in our lives at that time. That, that can skew our interpretation of the text. We can start to play around with it and massage it and you know, create a Bible that's more palatable and uh, easy to digest. The sixth problem is insufficient detail. In some ways, the Bible's really big, but on the other hand, you sort of wish you had a few more books to 
an appendix to sort of answer some of the difficult questions. So God, uh, what is it? Um, I can't remember if it's the Gospel of John. One of the Gospels talk about, maybe you can help me with this. You know, if everything Jesus ever did was written down, it would fill all the books in the world. John. So obviously that's an exaggeration, but um, the point being is that we don't get everything. So you always ask, well, why did the author select this material? Out of all the stories he could have told, why this material? And that is probably a better question than why don't I have more information than I do? Asking why did I get this information, assuming there's no what I call throwaway lines in the Bible, there's no like filler material like there is in hot dogs. There's no extra. It's all meaningful. Then assuming that that's true, we, it's better for us to ask why do we have what we have than why don't we have what we don't have? It's just a better question. Problems arising from dating issues. Now this is not about your relationships, but um, I mean it might be, but and that may go back to number five, the fallen condition. But what I'm talking about is sometimes we just don't know when a book was written or when it was received because it's not always true that the event that's being recorded was recorded right away. It could have been several centuries later. A classic example that obviously Genesis was written <laughs> centuries after it actually occurred. The events occurred by Moses. So some of the books are locked down. It's obviously easier in the New Testament, but the Old Testament, it can be like, man, what, when was this book written? Maybe there's an, something about the dating of the book that isn't kind of hinders um, outcomes. Eighth, problems arising from the author's vantage point. Great example, the synoptic gospels. What are the synoptic gospels? Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So the four gospels, the synoptic ones, the ones that are sort of synonymous, if you think of that word, are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They record a lot of the same material. But if you actually read several of those accounts, read Matthew's accounts that appear in Mark or Mark's accounts that appear in Luke, you'll notice more or less information given. Why? Why wouldn't they all sort of say the same thing? Well, each author has a different macro purpose. So Matthew, heavily interested in the kingship of Christ, improving the kingship of Christ. Luke is very, seems very interested in Jesus as the son of man, the humanity of Christ. Each author sort of approaches it a little bit different. So the material then is selected, you get more or less to suit the macro purposes of each author. So again, rather than saying, well, why is Matthew's account? Matthew's account seems to be different than Mark's. Well, it's not different in substance. It's not like they're telling it they're telling you to two totally different things. Jesus says it's okay to steal. Jesus says it's not okay to steal. It's not like that. But the, they're looking at it from a different vantage point. So let's talk about truth-telling. If I tell you a story, and then I say, okay, now I want you to go home tonight and pick someone in your house and retell that story, or call a friend and retell this story, virtually none of you are going to be able to recall every word. And the way you even set up the story the purposes of the story might be a little different. You're going to tell it sort of from your vantage point. It's not about lying or deceiving, but vantage points differ. Or if we all have the same experience, maybe this would be a better analogy. Something suddenly happens in this room tonight. 
we all go home and we talk about it, there's different vantage points that we're going to have. So we're not denying the fact that the author's personality and circumstances are reflected in the text. Problems with arrangement. Sometimes books that are chronological suddenly become thematic. Sometimes books that are thematic suddenly become chronological. So a chronology is where you're sort of recording an event step by step in order of time. Other times you have themes. Now, a great example of this is read the synoptics. And let's say there's three episodes that are recorded in Mark and are also recorded in Luke. They may be in different order. But if you're reading them thinking, oh, this is chronological, Jesus went here, and then secondly, the next day he went here, and then third, the next day he went here, and you're like, okay, how could he have gone from there to there? That's like 100K. Oh, there's a discrepancy in the text. Well, the author may not be trying to record things chronological. Maybe the other author was recording it chronological, so the geography makes more sense. So you have to be careful not to assume that chronology is intended. He might just be giving you three stories back to back because he's trying to push for a theme rather than chronology. Problems arising, arising from ancient Near Eastern practices or validation. So we could talk about, now I could add into the ancient Near Eastern, I should probably also add Greco-Roman. Ancient Near Eastern is more like Old Testament, Greco-Roman. Uh, practices, circumcision, um, dietary laws, uh, measurement, how things were measured. Well, what, to what degree was accuracy expected? Um, head coverings. All these different things are in the Bible, but they must be understood through the lens of ancient or Eastern or Greco-Roman practices. And then we have approximations. You ever hear people... I've heard uh, guys... I don't know, this is several years ago, but someone... I can't remember who this was. It's probably like 20, 25 years ago. Well, the Bible's not mathematically accurate. Why? Well, if you look at the uh, the dimensions of the 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 laver in the in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, you know, it gives something like the radius and the circumference. But if you run the math, it's like off by a half a foot or something. Well, okay, yeah, but you're looking for an, uh, a measure of precision that is expected in a culture where we have accurate instruments. So your, your ability to approximate something, or your, not ability, your, um, uh, what's the word? Um, like what culture would allow you, what would be the word for that? Yeah, your tolerance for approximation is defined by your culture, whereas their tolerance for approximation is defined by their culture. So it's not wrong, it's just there's different, there's different allowances for uh, tolerance or lack thereof. I mean, even in our culture, if you're just talking to a friend about the distance between you know, here in London, Ontario, you might say uh, 180 kilometers. But, you know, I don't know, maybe it's 173.6. And if you were being really scientific, that's the number you'd be looking for. So your context is going to dictate how accurate you're going to be. Um, we also need to take into consideration that when we try to read the Bible through the eyes of modern science, we'll find all kinds of quote-unquote errors. 
But that's not true. God, God is speaking truth in light of cultural notions of the shape and distance of the world and how things are formed. And it's not that he's giving us things that are contrary to science necessarily, but they're not necessarily of the same accuracy that we would have based upon our expanded knowledge of things. So this is important for us to understand. Problems from cultural practices. We've talked about that uh, earlier on. We've given several examples of uh, looking at the culture. In the Bible written over a thousand years or more, you're dealing with different cultures, correct? So you can't just read it all as one ancient culture. It's, it could be as different from Exodus to the Gospels as it is between us and the medieval era a thousand years ago. That's a long period of time for cultural practices to change. And then the one that, of course, we would be most at fault for is a misread context. We didn't read around. We just zeroed in. You know the flip and point method? I just need a word from the Lord to encourage my heart. So you just flip it open and you just find something. You know, and it says, and Judas went out and hung himself. <laughs> you know, and then you want validation. Go ye and do likewise. You know, flip to another passage. And then another one, go ye and do quickly. You know, whatever. So the flip and point method is dangerous. You're misreading the context. So you have to be very careful about that. Don't misread the context. So what are the possible results of sorting through these kinds of issues? Um, one is... It can stimulate an ongoing quest for answers or pursuit of answers. So if you, myself, as a seasoned Christian, if I experience a, a, an apparent discrepancy, that shouldn't, oh, I'm throwing in my faith. That's it. Forget it. It's all, that's, okay, I'm stimulated. I, I need to go find this out. I need to go figure this one out. So that's one possible result. Or it could be, I'm going to start questioning inerrancy. Maybe the Bible isn't true. Maybe it is, isn't in. Maybe it is in error instead of inerrant. I could question my faith. That would be the most catastrophic one, of course. Question my very faith. Or I could trust, grow in my trust, uh, uh, grow in trust and my trust in God's word. So what I'm hoping you'll do is pick the first one or the last one instead of one of the middle two. Ongoing pursuit, trusting in God's word. I've given you some uh, reference materials, I think. Do you have those? So those are three, well, five books that I would recommend you, um, if you can pick them up, you see them on sale or whatever. Those are ones I would recommend um, for, for you. If you're sharing your faith with someone else, probably the fifth one would be the most popular one that's uh, you know, really usable today. The fourth one is really good if you're speaking to young people because it's really quick. It's like a question, couple paragraph answer, a question, couple paragraph answer. Speaking to young people, maybe you want to buy it as a gift book for kids or young teens or even middle teens, that would be good. The others are more like reference books, but I, I, I would definitely recommend all of them. Geisler's Apologetics would be the most difficult read, but if you like a little bit of philosophy and worldview stuff, it, it is quite helpful. Okay. Well, what we'll do now then is we'll look at um, 7.30. You know what? Let's take a break. We'll take a 10-minute break, and then we'll get into structure and contextualization.
We're going to talk now about uh, structure and contextualization. And this is important material because it relates to the next um, practicum or assignment for, for the course. Um, okay, so he, here's what I would say to, to get us going. The material I'm going to share with you works if you practice it step by step, but there's several ways you can arrive at the same result. In other words, you could create your own steps uh, that maybe look different from mine. There's different hermeneutical Bible study books that approach this differently. So don't get like all worked up. I got to remember every one, one of these steps. Just think about it more conceptually. Try to remember, try to wrap hold uh, in your mind of what, what I'm trying to communicate, and then you can sort of tweak this and develop this for yourself. But having said that, it's nice to have at least one workable series of steps to get you started. So what, I'm, what, I, what I would like you to think about is, um, you're, let's say you're looking at 3 John. So we're looking at 3 John, and 3 John is a, it's a small book compared to some of the other books we have. I'll just flip there for a moment. It's a little shorter than 1 John. Yeah. You guys are experts in 1 John now. So So 3 John, what do we have? Um, 15 verses. But there's a lot of meat there. A lot of things to think about, to mull over, to, to kind of break down. When, when someone gives you a plate of spaghetti, you don't just take the plate like this and open your mouth and <laughs> drop it in. So, yeah, some of my boys. I was going to say, unless you're Simon. Yeah. He's got it down to about three bites now. But it's funny, actually. Uh, so my birthday was Saturday. Kezia's was, is today. So yesterday, in between, Susie got an ice cream cake, right? So we had some cake yesterday, but we had enough left over for today. So we ate supper before I came, and I said, uh, Leave, I want you to get that cake out. I just like find the smallest piece for me. I just wanted the smallest piece. Simon's like, give me the biggest piece. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, when you eat a meal, you eat it bite by bite, not all at once. So when you are reading first, third John... It's, it's not a huge meal, but it's a good-sized meal. And you can read it, and then you come... You, this happens to me. I read like a lengthy portion of Scripture, and I step back. I'm like, okay, I don't really remember anything. I just read. Now i got to go back in and read it piece by piece. Then I'll remember, bite by bite, savor every bite. So all I'm saying is when, when, when I'm doing this uh, exercise on structuring a passage, really what I'm helping you do is break it down bite by bite. That's it. So we're structuring it. So here are some of the benefits to developing a structural outline. Taking the passage and putting it into a series of headings. Major ones, minor ones. There could be three major ones, eight major ones, 17 minor ones, three minor ones. I don't know what you'd go below minor. Minor, 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 minor. Just breaking it down. Here are some benefits. Number one, it helps you identify major thought divisions. The writer is taking you thought by thought, by thought, through some material. When you structure a passage, you now see his thought progression. Secondly, it assists in the preparation of lessons and sermons. 
So one of the secrets to being a good teacher is feed it to your students bite by bite. Now the student might go away feeling overwhelmed because they actually got a full meal, but you didn't give it to them as a full meal. You gave it to them bite by bite. So it aids in that. It also helps the reader to see the whole in light of the parts. So you get to see the micro, the macro, the large, the small, however you want to put it. If we want to do that, then here's a method that I would propose will really help you in structuring passage and arriving at those benefits. Major thought divisions, lesson preparation, and seeing the whole in light of the parts. First one, read through the book several times to get the overall flow. This is the most important step I'm going to suggest. Read it, reread it, and reread it. Preferably in a relatively brief period of time. Doesn't mean you got to read like Genesis in one night and then read the whole thing again the next night. But if you take two weeks to read through Genesis, then maybe take two more weeks to read through it, then two more weeks to read through it. So become an expert in Genesis instead of just a little bit here and there and then you forget everything. Really read it, reread it, reread it. It's also recommended that you can use, you use different translations. So NIV, dynamic equivalent. Um, KJV, a wooden literal translation that's kind of old school. ESV, a wooden literal translation that's modern. Different translations will help. I think there's several Spanish translations of the Bible too, and some of them are more like the old Spanish, and some of them are more modern, so you could practice that. In fact, for those of you that um, can fluently read a couple languages, I think you're actually at an advantage because I would recommend like you read it in Spanish and English, in Mandarin and English. Tagalog and English. Read it in those different uh, translations, and that, that's even better than reading three different English ones. Okay, the next thing you do is you put on your, your, your spectacles, and now you're looking. You're looking for major shifts in thought. You're looking for, and you're taking notes or putting markers in the text to indicate that. Changes in genre. Oh, I'm reading through gospel, and all of a sudden I'm reading a song, the song of Mary. Then I'm back to gospel. Now I'm into a parable. That's a different kind of genre within the gospel. So you look for different shifts of genre. Points of view. Uh, sometimes the point of view is God's point of view. The, the, the author says, thus saith the Lord, in the old language, thus says the Lord. He's like speaking on God's behalf. Other times he's preaching a sermon, it's God's word because it's in God's word. But it's now Ezekiel speaking to you. Look for different points of view. Look for expansions upon previous ideas. Just like um, in a sermon, a preacher might say, the Bible says that God is honored when we sacrifice our treasures for the purpose of the kingdom. That's his big idea. And then he breaks it down at a whole bunch of subpoints. That's an example of you, you communicate a big thought and then you expand it. So look for things like that, shifts of thought. Again, you don't have to remember all the things I'm sharing with you, but the idea of observation, observation, observation is very important to good Bible study. Third, you then go back to your text and uh, like I, I don't mind marking up my Bible, but there's not a lot of space in most Bibles to do this. So my preference is if I'm really going detailed into a book, I print the book off. So I print it off 
ESV Online or Bible Gateway. I mean, Third John is so small. You just highlight, copy, and paste the text into a Word document, maybe triple space it out, and print it off. Then you got a nice worksheet with lots of space in between to take notes, hole punch, and put them in a binder. And now you can work from a text that you can mark up, you can print extra copies off if you make mistakes, or you're having draft one, draft two, draft three. That's how I like to do it. Tentatively label each major section with a heading and add the verse reference. So you remember what, because the heading is your words. You don't want to forget, what, okay, was I going from like chapter one, one to six, or chapter one, one to eight? So put chapter one, one to eight after your heading. Beware of translation and verse division. So what you have to learn to do is almost delete from your reading the little numbers. Forget about those for a moment. Just read it as if those weren't there because they weren't there in the beginning. Jesus didn't put those in. Those are added by the Masoretes. First they did the chapters and then, I don't know, centuries or decades later they added the verses. So just forget about those. You'll notice like sometimes the, ver the verse references clearly start and stop a thought and other times you're like randomly right in the middle of a verse so just forget about those those are not sacrosanct and um uh, just remember they're not necessarily the best indicators of structuring a passage the second thing is the little headings that are in our translations those weren't put in there by jesus either they may be excellent headings that you want to borrow or perhaps you're like, you know what, I think I actually have some better words that I could apply to that section to break it down. So you don't have to follow those headings. They're just in there, and they differ from version to version. And as we talked about last week, uh, note the key connective words. Oh, sorry, I missed number five. Read through the book once again after you've come up with your major headings. And there's no magical numbers to how many major headings there are, but there shouldn't be too many. Um... Like there shouldn't be, I'm just, I'll just, to give you a very rough estimate, there, there probably shouldn't be more than one or two major headings per chapter, for sure. And there may only be one major heading for three or four chapters. So don't give me like, uh, you know, 18 headings for 18 verses. That's not major headings. Clump them up a little bit more. Read through it once again, and then you can go back and you tweak, you adjust. Okay, you know what? Actually, I'm going to, I think that, Verse 9 actually also belongs with verses 1 to 8. Or I'm going to kind of reword that heading to sort of capture the essence of the, the meaning a little bit better. So you just kind of play around with it a little bit. And then another helpful thing is to uh, use uh, different colors or different underlining patterns to note key connective words. So these are just examples. You can mix these up. You might want to look to the text and say, okay, every word that ha is kind of like a word of emphasis, I'm going to put a little red highlight over. So these would be words like truly or only. You know, the words of emphasis, they get some oomph to them. Words of comparison, like, as. You might want to highlight those with a green highlighter. Words of contrast, but, yet, though, although, orange. Words of potentiality, like if. Highlight those with yellow. Remember we went through these words last week? So I'm just giving you a little bit more here. Words of progression or correspondence. And, first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh. Maybe blue. Um, words of purpose. Perp would be, uh, you could highlight those in purple. Like words like 
because, for, so that. So words of time, uh, brown, words like after, before, then, while, until. A little bit different, but I just remembered that my first year of Bible college, one of the most helpful exercises we did was um, we took a course first semester called uh, Survey of the Old Testament. And then the second semester, survey of the New Testament. So a survey is basically the the professor is going to give you a, a bird's eye view of every book in the Old Testament. So if you got 15 weeks in a semester, you're you're covering several books in a class. But he's going to touch down on um, you know history, date of the book, uh, authorship, original recipients, um, major themes, and major headings. And he moves on to the next book. So we we would work through all the books of the Bible in a year. So he said, okay, here, he made us purchase a Bible for this purpose alone. It's just a simple hardcover NIV Bible. And we had to read in the first semester through the whole Old Testament. And I think we had three or four highlighters. Any passages that spoke of redemption, we highlighted them in yellow. Well, there's a lot of those in the Old Testament. Uh, passages that spoke of covenant, highlight them in red. And he had three or four or five different things we were to look for. So you're reading, but you had to read with all, you know, all cylinders on high alert kind of thing. And then he would grade you on it. So he had a list of key redemptive passages, and he just flipped randomly. And you're like, okay, yep, you got that one. You got, you might have got more than he had, but you'd get graded on that. And it forced you. You had to like read the Bible very. Um, in a very disciplined fashion, is this talking about redemption? Okay, it's redemptive. Put your yellow in. Is this talking about covenant? And it just forced you to really see things in the text that you normally wouldn't see if no one's breathing down your neck. So this is the same kind of idea. It's applying now to key connective words, but it's forcing you to look for these things that otherwise you're just going to blow through in a devotional reading of the Bible. Then you're going to mark up words or ideas that are repeated or of special significance to the thought. And again, you can underline, put a box around, put a triangle over. I think Carol teaches a lot of precept. Doesn't precept do some of this kind of stuff? I don't know. Do they have like a set legend or is it sort of up to the student? Um, they do have some suggested markings, symbols, or words that appear throughout scripture. Okay. Okay. But it's the same idea. There's several, this is not new to me. I mean, there's several um, teachers probably for decades of biblical interpretation have taught this kind of stuff. And it's, it's just forcing you to, to digest the text, to take time to sort of chew on it. Then you're going to read through each of the major headings and then divide those down into subheadings. So you could say um, major headings, I'm going to go big A, big B, big C, big D. Minor headings, I'm going to go one, two, three, four. And then under those, you could have smaller headings, small A, small B, whatever works for you. And you're going to list those out. And then you can add any appropriate subheadings. You can take this down as far as you want. Obviously, John is a small book, so you're probably not going to have more than maybe, I don't know, a dozen major and minor headings total. Whereas when I outline Hebrews, I mean, I would have a few hundred major and minor headings throughout the whole book, depending on how I wanted to, you know, how detailed I wanted to go. So that's basically what I want you to do with 3 John. Read it, reread it. Uh, there's 15 verses, okay? You can't be that much complaining this time. Okay? <laughs> Rhonda. Um, 
and uh, just add some major headings and then some minor headings and make your adjustments. And what you want to do is come up with a nice crisp outline, similar to but far more detailed than what you'd have like at the beginning of a study Bible. See, they have greetings, verses 1 to 4, praise for Gaius, verses 5 to 8, concern for diatrophies, 10 to or 9 to 10, advice and commendation of Demetrius, 11 to 12, closing with promise to visit. A little more detailed than that, but kind of along those lines is what we're looking for. And it's your words. You can go steal it from a commentary, but I want you to learn the process of thinking this way for yourself. Uh, by the way, keep it exegetical. So don't say, uh, don't come up with a heading like uh, God calls us to love each other. No, no, it's, it's specific to this audience. The wording is not us wording or sermon wording. It's trying to explain what the actual text is saying. So you're going to do that in 3 John for next week. And then um, let's just talk about the impact of the Old Testament on the New. So the Old Covenant is more, Old Covenant scriptures is more than just stuff that came beforehand. It's leading up to the central event in human history, which is Christ. And then the New Testament's leading away. So something happened between the Old and the New. It's pretty significant. It's not just B.C., A.D. stuff. It's, there's something else there. So as the New Testament writers then write, they're taking the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament. Again, I prefer calling it the Old Covenant Scripture. And then we have the New Covenant Scripture. And in the middle is the cross. And they're taking us back to see things in it that we hadn't seen before. They're also, the Old Testament writers, not that they're doing it, but the New Testament writers are helping us to understand how the New Testament comes into the new. And of course, ceremonially, there's a lot of X's because stuff is X'd out. This, our our um, align, uh, obligation to follow the ceremonial laws. But then like the moral laws, those carry through. They're repeated. Uh, teaching, like our doctrine uh, about, you know, God and Jesus Christ and man and angels, those are kind of re-emphasized and taken to a whole new level. This is how we should read the two Testaments, not old, obsolete, new, that's all I care about. That's like really drives me nuts when people, that's just Old Testament. Why do you have it in your Bible then? You know, like it, there's, it's far more important than that. Anyway, so the, as the New, New Testament writers use this material, either word for word or by alluding to it or helping us to see it in a more full, fuller way, here are some of the things that we need to be thinking about. I want to talk first about signs and symbols. So signs and symbols in the Old Testament are frequent, all through the Old Testament. And why are they there? Well, they demonstrate in very memorable ways God's miraculous works and his divine nature. The New Testament writers often allude to these symbols in New Testament writings. What would be a classic example of that? The Lord's Supper. You can't really understand the Lord's Supper if you don't understand the Passover. And the Passover doesn't make any sense unless you understand signs and symbols. The New Testament rite of 
communion is sign and symbol, but it's understood against a backdrop of other signs and symbols, the Passover. Uh, baptism is a sign and a symbol. Um, several things that we, we, uh, we encounter in the Bible are communicated to us in sign and symbol. Circumcision. So um, we need to be good then at reading and understanding sign and symbol in the scripture. I yeah. have one question. Mm. And the signs and symbols, they not all the time are for, for the same time. For Correct. For talking about circumcision, Correct. it's only for Jewish people, not for Roman or... As a religious or, right. Yeah. Yes, as a religious right. I mean, there's... Mm people have all their opinions on the health side, but as a religious rite, it's sign and symbol of the old covenant, not the new. So Galatians the makes that clear where Paul gives Peter a backhander for trying to force circumcision upon Jewish uh, Gentile converts. Yeah. But, speaking of circumcision, what are some of the signs? Some of them are physical. Physical signs and symbols or identifying marks. Well, circumcision is kind of both of those, but uh, other s physical signs are, so the Old Testament would be pillar of fire, pillar of cloud to guide the people by day and night. Everything to do with the tabernacle and temple was sign and symbol. The laver had symbolism, the basin, the altar, the golden lamp stands, uh, the, the colors of the tapestry, the way the loops were formed to hang the curtains, the location of the holy place, the location of the most holy place, what was on the Ark of the Covenant, what was in the Ark of the Covenant. It's all sign and symbol. So physical sign and symbol. We have um, identifying marks uh, on people. So um, the all through the ear for slaves. Uh, again, we've talked about circumcision as being um, one of them. Beards in in the old covenant, even coming into the new. It, it wasn't so much a covenant thing, but it was a cultural consideration that had implications for how we read some passages. Beards, um, long hair for the Nazarite, Samson, the long hair. So there are a lot of physical characteristics that you sort of need to be familiar with. Sometimes the sign uh, functioned as a declaration. So... Um, and some of these overlap. So for, for Samson, as an example, his long hair and some of his dietary um, considerations were declarations of the Nazarite vow, which he had taken. Some signs functioned as uh, warnings to the people. So we have uh, situations where, um, you know, you mix water with dirt, you drink it, and it sort of functioned as a warning for who had had affairs among the people. Uh, sometimes there's an aspect of signs and seals where they, they give a proof or they give a measure of assurance. So the Holy of Holies is sort of the assurance of God's presence on earth. Now, um, you have to be careful when you read those texts so you don't think, well, actually, in the Old Testament, God actually was this big, right? He just stayed in one little spot. He's still omniscient. He's still omnipresent, of course. But there was a sign in which his power was manifested in the Holy of Holies in a greater way. He was, it wasn't literally a localized God that suddenly got big. Uh, it's a reminder. So we have um, 
I mean, obviously we've mentioned communion and baptism. Those are reminders of something that has preceded them. A port and an object lesson, an omen. Uh, you know, one of the craziest guys in the Bible is undoubtedly Ezekiel. Like some of the stuff he does, I don't, I don't even know how I would preach that. He takes his underwear off, goes down, hides it in a rock, waits till it's rotten, and then puts him back on. Or like, what do you do with that one in a mixed audience, right? But it's a sign, it's a symbol, it's an omen. He lays on his side for like a year or something, eating food cooked on camel or uh, a horse dung or whatever it was, and he flips on the other side. These are the signs that he was engaging in were omens and warnings about God's pending judgment. And that's how they functioned. A witness or a testimony alters witnesses' testimony. When Abraham came from Mesopotamia into uh, the promised land, he would build altars, uh, partially to lay claim to the land as a worshiper, but also as as a um, a witness to God's blessings, God's covenant, something God had done for him. And those stood potentially for several generations for that purpose. Symbols, we have symbolic words. Um, what would be some symbolic words? When I mean symbolic words, I mean words that have uh, like a layered meaning to them or uh, you know, heightened significance. Mm. Yep, so we have um, seven, the, the word seven, 12. Uh, the most obvious one is Yahweh. There's symbolism of his life, his power, uh, his sac- the sacred nature of God is communicated in this by holding this name in a heightened position. Symbolic persons. Can you think of some symbolic persons in the scriptures? Yeah, he's he's a classic one, Melchizedek. A literal person, at least I believe he was. Some people don't. But he... Uh, He's, he's symbolic. His name means uh, king of righteousness. Abraham, who you know, you're reading through that part, portion of Genesis, you're thinking, this is like the number one guy on earth now. But then he's subservient to Melchizedek. Pays a tithe Maybe. to him. Pardon me? Maybe Maria? Um, hmm. I think there were certain things in her life that that were symbolic, but... She doesn't really function as a symbolic person per se, whereas Melchizedek does in that there's kind of a mystery to Melchizedek that's applied to Christ. Um, Some people think that Melchizedek might have been Shem, um, the son of Noah. I read something about her. This is what I asked you because Mm -hmm. I I read something. They said that by um, uh, Alexandrina, Alexandria, um, they put in a, a Maria Virgin like a, a non-real mother of, of God because they said that she was a virgin. They're talking about... Uh, oh, in the Alexandrian texts? Yes. So they're saying that the virgins they, doesn't they mean... They say that um, Maria was a, a blessing by the Holy Spirit mm. and she was a virgin when she mm-hmm. had a... Jesus. Jesus. But after that, they put in in, in, in a dilemma. A dilemma. 
then she was really building this policy to strike of the foreign policy with us or not. I was reading something. You're saying she wasn't? Yeah. I mean, I don't know what you're referring to, but I. I never heard nothing about that in the Bible, like ideology. I never heard about it, but I read that documentary by Jewish and Christian Catholic. The only thing I can think of is in Isaiah 7, where Maharshal Hashbaz is born from the virgin, who's the wife of Isaiah. That the even though like a lot of translations will say the virgin shall conceive, so there's the the literal wife of Isaiah. She foreshadows Mary. Well, the literal wife of Isaiah was not a virgin, and that word there can mean young woman or virgin. But when applied to Mary, Mary is called a virgin. But some people say, well, if Mary is a fulfillment of Isaiah's wife, and Jesus Maharshal Hashbaz. They take you back to Isaiah 7. They say, well, this word doesn't mean virgin. And they're correct. Yeah, this is what they said. But that doesn't negate the New Testament record that Mary is clearly communicated to us as a virgin. And that, in fact, the virginity of Mary is fundamental to Jesus sidestepping the sin nature, which is passed on from father to son, not from mother to son. They, they said when I was reading I try to remember the name of the book, but I don't remember exactly. And they said that uh, that they don't consider too much talking about her in the in the Bible mm-hmm. because that concept about the age of virgin mm-hmm. is some shame on about life of Jesus Christ. Some what? Sorry. And that's uh, that's consideration about if she was virgin because it was like a natural building all by the age. Yeah, well, Michelle, you're going to get you're going to get lots of Jewish scholars trying to debunk the virginity of Christ, but they can't do it based upon the biblical record. Because the biblical record in four gospels communicates something very otherwise that Mary was a virgin. And to go back to, you know, Isaiah and say, well, Isaiah's wife wasn't a virgin who foreshadows Christ, therefore Mary isn't a virgin, is misunderstanding the nature of prophecy. It's misunderstanding, again, that word fulfill. Because when you read Isaiah, you're not literally saying that this woman was Mary or in every way, shape, or form was Mary any more than her son was Jesus or was the Messiah or any more than Isaiah was Joseph. There's there's thematic tie-ins, there's similarities, there's foreshadowing in Isaiah and his wife, but they're different people. The Gospels declare that Mary uh, conceived as a virgin, and that's undeniable. So, Anyway, any other symbolic persons you can think of? How about Elijah? Elijah has sort of a, a, a symbolic dimension to him in that, um, uh, you know, later on some people thought maybe Jesus, was he Elijah? Almost like a, maybe not so much of a reincarnation, but almost like a, a second Elijah of so, sorts that had come among them. And then symbolic objects, bread, wine, those are symbolic objects that symbolize something beyond the literal. Symbolic places, what are some symbolic places? The Kidron Valley, the valley where everybody throw their garbage and dead corpses, that, uh, usually there was always a fire burning there to burn up the rubbish, that became a symbol of um, hell. 
Uh, Jerusalem became a symbol of like heaven on earth. Uh, to the east became a symbol of what? Running from God. So even in Revelation, the hordes of evil, the Antichrist, come from the east. So there's even north, south, east, west, and east always kind of gets the the uh, the negative connotations. So there's symbolic places, symbolic actions. What are some symbolic actions you can think of in the scriptures? Tearing of the clothes, uh, wearing sackcloth, pouring ashes on your head. There's your symbolic of lament, of mourning. Um, in Revelation, the symbolic clothes are white robes. So that's symbolic. White becomes a symbol of purity. Uh, what about symbolic um, uh, religious or cultic symbolism? Well, we've already touched on some of that. But uh, oh, I, should, I should mention this. The word cult, we always use it negatively, but it's actually not a negative word. The word cult can be used in reference to ritual. And I discovered this many years ago. I started to study the Old Testament theology, and you're reading through these commentaries and talking about like the cult of Moses, and you're like, hold on here. But then I realized that the word cult just refers to the rituals and the systems in actual fact. So when you're reading old commentaries especially, they'll often talk about the whole sacrificial system as cultic. But they're not meaning it in the way like Jehovah's Witness or, or Mormons. They're just talking about the religious system. So in my notes there, religious or cultic symbolism is a reference to the, the habits, the patterns, the, um, the, uh, the, the rituals that were attached to the Old Testament sacrificial system. So those Old Testament sacrificial system, the Old Testament sacrificial system, when you're reading it, you look for symbolism. Now, remember we talked about, um, I think we've talked about this, talked about ceremonial law and moral law and then more like doctrinal law. So we have um, the dietary laws like don't eat pork. That's ceremonial. Because of Galatians, we can eat pork. So that's more ceremonial. When Christians say we're not bound to the law, what they should mean is we're not bound to the ceremonial law, like the sacrificial system. The, the specific acts that a Jew would do as part of the Old Covenant. But then there's other laws that are recorded in the Old Testament that we are still bound by, notably like nine of the Ten Commandments. They're all even repeated in the New Testament. Several other commandments, of course, as well, that are moral in nature. Um, then we have like political-type laws or cultural-type laws. So the slavery texts... Skeptics love to pick on the slavery tax. So you serve a loving God, so you believe in slavery? No. Uh, well, then why does God sanction slavery? Well, he's accommodating cultural problems. And so there's all kinds of laws put in place, which, interesting, if you read the older Old Testament books and you read through the New Testament books, it's clear that God is moving his people redemptively toward abolition. If you don't believe that, just go read Philemon. Um, so there's, he's accommodating culture, but he's moving his people in a, in a redemptive direction toward a better ethic. Um, and even if you compare like what's going on in the Old Testament compared to what was going on in the nations around them, their laws were like 
on steroids in terms of righteousness compared to what was going on around them in terms of sla treatment of slavery and whatnot. So God's moving from ancient or Eastern culture to a better ethic, to a better ethic, to a better ethic. And so we got different laws and in those laws, there are, um, there are a lot of symbols that we need to sort of unpack and try to understand. Some of them are difficult, admittedly, when I've taught like Pentateuch courses through the Old Testament, the first five books. Man, it, it, is, it is, you know, difficult to understand some of those texts. Like the menstruation texts, not only does it make me feel uncomfortable studying them, but I, I don't understand them all. Some of those menstruation texts, you know, if a girl's born, you're 60 days out. If a boy's born, you're 30. I wonder, maybe God wanted to honor the girl. That'd be the positive interpretation. So he gave the woman more time off to sort of point to the fragility of the feminine uh, sex. Or maybe it was a strongly patriarchal idea and it was sort of, pushing the woman down and elevating the guy that you present him to the nation quicker. I don't really know. So some of it's been lost in time, but I would say the majority of it you can sort through and, and interpret with a fair degree of, uh, of confidence. So um, final thing I want to do is just very quickly touch down on the use of Old Testament quotes and illusions in the New Testament. Now, we, we, unfortunately, we won't have time to illustrate all of these, but I, this list I would encourage you to sort of highlight, put a star beside, kind of review and maybe go over a little bit. There's 11 points. Um, how many different ways could a New Testament writer quote from or elude to an Old Testament text or event or symbol? Here they are. The New Testament writer may wish to point to an accomplishment of the Old Testament in the New. This happened, and or a, a prophet predicted it, and now it is being accomplished, and I'm going to tell you how. So just kind of a real straightforward, I'm a, it's now accomplished, kind of like an it is finished experience, like on the cross. So you, you'd say the cross is the accomplishment of Passover, the sacrificial system, all that kind of stuff, right? Or he may be using it to confirm that a New Testament incident has some measure of agreement with an Old Testament principle. So an incident and a principle. Third, may wish to explain an Old Testament incident further. So something that was maybe a little bit ambiguous, like Abraham tithing to Melchizedek, and the writer of Hebrews tries to help us to understand that a little bit more. Uh, fourth, you may wish to explain a New Testament incident uh, using the Old Testament. So that's kind of the reverse of the previous. Fifth, he may desire to illustrate an Old Testament truth. So illustrate it, a truth. It's not necessarily, when he's quoting it, he's not necessarily saying there's a direct correlation, but he's just using it as an illustration may wish to summarize an Old Testament concept, may wish to draw a parallel between the old and the new. To, we often emphasize like the discontinuity, the differences. may want to show the continuity between the covenants, the similarities. He simply may be utilizing Old Testament terminology. Apparently, I'm not an expert in this, but apparently one of the major categories of schooling 
that you would go through in the Greco-Roman era was a school schooling in what's called rhetoric. So you know how we have grade school, then we have high school, then we have a, a terminal college diploma, or we go the other route, we have an undergraduate, then we have a graduate, then we have a postgraduate. So we have these different sections. Um, in the time of Christ, in the Roman world, one of those sections would be training in rhetoric. And rhetoric is essentially about argumentation and the use of language. If you read the book of Hebrews, it's very clear that whoever wrote that was very, you know, got A pluses in rhetoric. Because he uses the rhetorical structures that we know existed in the first century. Now those rhetorical structures have largely been lost. We don't think that way. We don't teach that way anymore. But one of the rhetorical structures that they would use is to simply borrow Old Testament language or ancient language, but you're not necessarily intended to think of it as, oh, this is being prophesied here. He's just using the language again. Again, this is where culture sometimes hinders us. Ninth, he may use an Old Testament story to illustrate a New Testament principle. Um, Maybe an example of this, combined with number 10, employing Christological typology, would be, well, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so Jesus was three days, three nights in the grave. Okay, well, how does that, how does Jonah and a fish have anything to do with Jesus in a grave? Well, really nothing. Other than there's a typology and uh, a, some sort of a story maybe of redemption going on there, or he might just be borrowing the language to, so that in your head, maybe you remember three days and three nights because you've heard the Jonah story so many times. So there could be something like that going on there. Or he may wish to draw attention to salvation history, how God has been a God of salvation throughout both Testaments. So under each of these headings, one could you know, study this out and uh, come up with several examples of that. If you flip back to the course bibliography, uh, let me see here. If you want to do any more reading on this, I believe the second book down, if I remember correctly, and maybe the third book, I'm going to go with the second book, Corley's book. I believe he has a section in his work there on the use of the Old Testament and the New. Otherwise, you could actually just Google it and read extensive articles on this because it's a whole like sub-science within biblical interpretation. But what I'll just tell you this, if, um, if you venture into this, you will quickly become familiar with that rhetoric that people were studying back then. And just like in our culture, um, if you go through certain kinds of schooling, like especially schooling in the arts, you learn to write research paper papers. In a research papers, your professor will be very sticky that if you're quoting from other sources, you're using it in context, using it in a certain way. But our understanding of context is very limited. Our, our retor, retor, what we call rhetorical arguments are very limited, very Western. They had a much broader understanding of how quotes and allusions and figures of speech could be utilized. Now, if you remember nothing else, just this, this will just help you. If you're ever reading the, Old, the New Testament, you see an Old Testament quote, and you go back and you read it, and you think this is out of context, just recall this conversation. 
and realize that even if I don't remember these 11 principles, okay, what's going on is he's using the quote in a way that's not familiar to me or culturally accepted to me, but it was culturally accepted to him. And nobody was sort of throwing rotten apples at him when he did it. So this is an example where culture changes. And rather than saying, well, they're wrong, we're right, we have to honor their culture because it's written within that culture in light of their rhetorical understanding of things. Okay? And Hebrews is probably the, the greatest example of this in that there are so many different rhetorical structures uh, mentioned there simply because most of Hebrews is quoting from the Old Testament, especially the opening chapters, just line after line after line after line, but obviously a very fascinating book. Okay? Um, just any, any, we're pretty much out of time, but none of us are waiting for junior highs down the hall, so... Any closing questions or comments you might have? Okay, so your first John assignments, um, I don't know, maybe you can just maybe leave them over by the juice jug there and I'll pick them up on the way out and just kind of read through them and make any quick comments that I can. But if, if you haven't submitted that assignment and you want to still work on it, you know, you can get it to me later. But if you have it tonight, I'll, I'll have a quick look at it and won't give you a grade, but I'll maybe give you some comments, okay? Well, thanks for coming. So, no class next week, but then we're back for two more weeks.